less is more, mm. right? I think a lot of people try to like do OKRs across the entire company or across every individual. It's like, oh my God, that's really hard, right? Um, you know, when I um, when I did this at Altasaurus, right, we started with one business unit. We ran it there. We ran the mechanisms. We figured out the, the processes, right? Then we expanded out to the executive level. Then we dripped down another layer. And so there's a sequencing to this, right? Don't, um, you can be patient, right? Um, again, I, I just used this word a minute ago, but it's all about progress, right? Are you making progress? Are you a little bit better with your OKRs this quarter or this period, whatever that is, than you were the previous? And that's way more important than trying to bite off the entire elephant. Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, VP of Product Marketing at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. And inspired by the proven objectives and key results goal-setting methodology, GTM Hub offers the most flexible business orchestration software for mission-driven organizations to provide clarity of strategy and execution across teams, functions, and business units. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. When paired with an HR leader like my guest on this episode of Dreams with Deadlines, OKRs can be transformational for workplace cultures. Bradford Wilkins is a successful chief people officer who gets exactly how OKRs create cross-functional team alignment and shift company-wide priorities. Currently CPO for a startup in stealth mode, Bradford got into human resources because he loves making people happy. The reason he's excelled at the job? His ability to be forward-thinking and agile. Bradford is breaking down the many ways in which OKRs can be leveraged to improve customer experience, employee engagement, and productivity. We're also learning about the role data analytics play in measuring and adjusting for long-term success and increased employee autonomy. Bradford shares the backstory on OKR processes he has implemented, including shifting company culture towards a more outcome-based approach trending hard as the result of COVID-accelerated adoption of remote work. Building an agile program that distinguishes between OKRs and KPIs. Infusing company-wide meetings and employee evaluations with OKR-oriented measures and priorities. Deploying clear career path, learning objectives, expectations, accountabilities, and rewards in a sales context. We also talk about how leaders who are vulnerable about personal challenges set a tone that inspires collaboration and openness throughout the ranks. Why creating an environment where it's safe for employees to try and fail is a key element to successful OKR implementation and tips and tactics for anyone thinking about launching an OKR initiative. Finally, we wrap the episode with a round of quickfire questions. So let's jump in. So today I'm really excited because I have Brad Wilkins joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, correct? That is correct. Right. And so we're going to discuss a different topic because I've had a lot of product engineering tech leaders on this show. And you're my first, I think, who is on the people side of things. So I think this is going to be a very exciting episode for our listeners. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you get here? 
Yeah, no, so um, I'll zoom all the way out, right? So I, I grew up with eight brothers and sisters and both my parents were CEOs and we also did foster care. So we generally had 10 to 13 kids. The reason I start here, because it, it's, I love the etymology of where did someone start, how they get to where they are, right? And so one of the things I figured out as a kid, because as you can imagine with 10, 13 kids running around, no one really said good job, right? My parents were working really late. They're amazing parents, great, generous people, but there was a lot of energy going around. And so you figured out very quickly that the way you could control your happiness was how you treated other people, right? Mm. A lot of people go into the world and, and measure their happiness each day on how people treated them or what people did for them. But in my environment, from a psychological safety standpoint, frankly, I had to figure out, hey, if I can control how I treat people and what I do for them, and at the end of the day, if I did bad that day, I can fix that tomorrow. Whereas if someone treats me bad today, I, I can you can't fix it. it, but I can't control it, right? Mm -hmm. And so in a weird flipped way, right, I found the thing that energized and got me through each day was the ability to make people happy and, and do things for people. Growing up 10 years old, I was reading business books. What, uh, what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School is my favorite book at 10. I was doing different things in my teens and, and working for corporations, doing some consulting and stuff. And so I always loved business. And then uh, in college, I was dual major business and theater. But I ended up finding there was more application to business, having gotten, gotten some exposure in the theater department, which is all about collaboration, deadlines, right? Opening night, eight o'clock is opening night, no exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing quite like that. And you've got to figure it out. And you work together with different personalities. And I did a lot of directing as well, right? And so directors look at the script and the lighting designer, the scenic designer, costume designer, and how do you unify all those different components to say, how do I both look great collectively and also allow each person to highlight themselves? Which in a funny long-winded way is how I got into HR because that is HR in a nutshell. You know, HR is orchestrating how do we let each and every part of the organization, product and engineering or sales or accounting, all these different functions, how do we let them shine and showcase and do what they do really, really well? And at the same time, not just appear, but actually be unified and aligned and kind of communicating and clarity. And so I kind of accidentally fell into HR, but frankly, it's something I never looked back at uh, a couple of companies I've actually been offered to run business units. And I've said no, because to me, the craft of people is so interesting because it also is impossible to be perfect at, right? Human beings are unpredictable, right? So the, the craft of HR is about increasing predictability or increasing certainty, knowing it is absolutely impossible to be certain on anything, right? <laughs> That's the only thing you can be certain of. That's always kind of the impossible dream, the quest for being perfect, knowing it's impossible is something that excites me and wakes me up every single day. Oh, that sounds like you are like in the right spot then. And now you're working for what sounds like an incredible opportunity at LoadSmart, uh, because from what I've read, they deploy artificial intelligence and machine learning to automate how cargo freights are price booked and shipped. So we're applying all of what feels like very future modern to what has already existed. And the company yeah. has grown tremendously. And you all closed a series C, if I remember correctly, at 90 million. So we're talking scale up, you're all in there. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about the future of freight? Yeah, no, absolutely. To your point, the freight industry, and I'm not from the freight industry, my background is, is more tech and, and, and hyper growth companies, is incredibly nascent. Even things getting to the cloud is just in the last few years. If I transpose and look at something like the travel industry, 20 years ago, you know, you used to get paper tickets, right? And then 
it's funny, about halfway through that, I remember vividly in 2008, 2009, calling Orbitz to book a flight, which sounds crazy. And I was like, we called a website to book a flight, but that was kind of the, you know, the, the part. And then, you know, today, you know, on Google Flights, I book 10 flights and uh, <laughs> get everything done in minutes. And the freight industry is still at paper tickets <laughs> just mm. to kind of put us where we are. And so one of the reasons why is if you look at the travel industry, there's what, 30, 40 airlines, you know, and to get all of those collected or, or hotels, there's, I don't know, 20,000 hotels, right? There are in the U.S. alone, 100 and something thousand trucking companies. And of those, 90% of them have eight trucks or less. And so it's incredibly dispersed data that is not connected. There is no central network where people can come together. Uh, things are silly. It's funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was calling. So I, I like to get on the floor and do different jobs in the company to, to really have both empathy and understanding. And I was doing the job of actually booking trucks. So a shipper says, hey, I need a movement from Denver to Atlanta, right? And uh, how do I get it there? Then someone's calling. Again, there's two ways, right? We have, we have some auto technology stuff, but there's a manual piece too. If, someone, if trucking companies are not on a network, you have to go trace them down, right? So Hmm. A lot of our stuff is automated, but there are people who go and procure trucks. And even in that very basic, so let's say I've got someone on the phone, they want to go from Denver to Atlanta, and uh, I need it picked up at two o'clock. It's like, oh, I can't get there till four o'clock. All right. Um, well, can you, if you pick up at four o'clock, can you still deliver it by at 9am? Like, oh no, I, I, I need to drop it off at 11 or whatever it may be, right? Or, or the reverse of that. For me to change pickup and delivery time right? Uh, and we have a product we just acquired called OpenDoc, which will probably address some of these issues as it gets embedded in the world, but literally would have taken me as the procurement agent to call the account manager, to call the customer, to call the warehouse, to see could they move the appointment, to call the customer back, to call the account management back, to call the procurement agent back, like eight steps. And by the way, by the time I called the trucker back, the fifth person in this transaction, they're like, yeah, my truck's good. I'm already ready to go. Well, yeah, I mean, there's limits to the number of hours people can drive, right? But a lot of trucking companies move to like teams. So they have two, you know, one guy down, one guy or, or woman off. So they can travel double the amount of time that typical. So again, same thing too, right? I, I would get someone who wants to run a team and they can do what would take two days in a traditional kind of trucking arrangement in one day. But again, same kind of thing for me to manually go do all that is completely disconnected. And that's not even when you pull up, right? Hopefully the, the pallet is ready. It's a lot of it's on paper. Same thing. I mean, you look at our port systems are completely a mess because a lot of it is extremely manual. And that's where the really exciting piece is, is how do you help connect not only the shippers, which are obviously our primary customers, but the shippers, the carriers, the ports, the customs, the warehouses, right? All these dispersed pieces that are not connected through data today. And again, it's interesting as the industry continues to evolve, there is all this information out there. And it's funny, I was at a company called Calibra uh, before here, which specialized in data intelligence. The freight industry is not immune to some of the issues around data and like, what data should I look at? I get all these reports and what it's meaningful, right? And it's interesting because to some extent there's human capital involved, but then to your point with AI and ML, right? That's one of the things that LoadSmart has really been tip of the spear at in their six or seven years in, in existence is really understanding that piece of it. And so I think there'll always be a human element to the whole transaction, right? The industry is too old to go pure digital in any quick way. But how do you take some of those menial tasks, whether it be RPAs, whether it be AI or ML, how do you create really exciting roles for people in the freight industry as well, where they're actually solving complex problems, not 
trying to see if I can call six people to reschedule and then try to reach the trucking company again. So that's part of where LoadSmart is really a leader in the space in terms of bringing new ideas and, and technologies to solve what, you know, when you say them out loud, sound like kind of basic problems, but are incredibly complex because of the number of different moving components. I was about to say the complexity in the process itself and the scale in which you work, like you'd mentioned right. the eight to 10 different trucking companies across the globe and how many of those right. that you have to coordinate with the rest of the workflow. That's incredible. It's thousands, right? And then thousands yeah. of, I mean, we have 9,000 enterprise kind of grade customers. And then it's funny, a truck is not a truck is not a truck, right? Like if you need yeah. something cold, what's called reefer, right? You need that. Or if you need to do a drop trailer where you leave it at the warehouse, like there's all the, you know, LTL, FTL, full load, partial truck load, right? There's all Lots of variables, um, lots of you know, variables. Uh, you know, and, then that, yes. and that's just domestic, right? Yeah. When we start getting to the fringe of international and customs and, and ships and air and all, I mean, the modalities, it's, I mean, and uh, again, LoadSmart primarily focuses today on domestic, but uh, that's just because that problem alone, and it's a you know $700 billion market cap, right? It completely unaddressed and less than 5% of that's digitized at this point, right? So it's just a massive, massive opportunity. Massive opportunity. of the century. You have been working with OKRs for a while now. This is kind of... Yeah the bread and butter, what I think of taking a lot of this data saturation and providing some focus around it, right. if you will. Can you kind of describe for us what that journey looked like at LoadSmart? Yeah. Because from what I remember you mentioning previously, at the initial stages, it was a lot of KPIs, which a lot of people yeah. were like, uh, but we know KPIs. And you're like, uh, right. that's not the same here. Sure. And right. Beyond that, we have focuses, like there are things that we need to be able to do as a business. Can you talk about your journey and how you orchestrated that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So what, I, what I'd say is we are still very much on the journey. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and anyone who tells you the journey is over, I, I feel bad for them because the journey never ends. This is uh, my fourth time putting in OKRs in a material way. And it's interesting. So to your point, when I got here, right, the OKRs were really KPIs at best, right? I mean, in some ways, the obtuseness of them a lot of times didn't even include numbers. They were more generalities and kind of directional pieces. It's almost like a map with no labels on it, if you will. Oh, goodness. Uh, By the way, if I zoom all the way out, that's better than nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Like a map with no labels, I'd be like, oh, I think that looks like a mountain over there. So we should go around it, right? A lot of companies operate without a map at all, right? They, they just do, right? And, and hope it works out or set an annual plan, right? I would love for me to see any annual plan where they can materially say like, oh, look, I hit 100% of exactly what I thought in November the year before. I predicted everything, right? Because if they can do that, I would love to talk to them about some lottery numbers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, this world, doesn't right? exist. But, and, you know, and, and it's funny because it, I always have a phrase, you know, it's impossible to succeed if you can't fail, right? And, uh, mm. and I think that's one of the things that scares people is, you know, they, they set these annual plans or these semi-annual plans or whatnot, but then they rarely do the kind of the look back and say, hey, what did we not get right? Why, why did we not get it right? And, and so to me, that's some of the more powerful work of OKRs is not actually the setting them up, right? Because Creating OKRs by itself is nothing, right? It's, I could have the most beautiful, perfectly crafted OKRs, but if they're not integrated into your day-to-day decisioning and, and into your, you know, the way that you're improving your forecast, because at its very core, I always say the difference in an OKR and a KPI is an OKR tells me how I know if I did something well, 
right? A KPI can tell me if I did something, right? Like say something in, in HR, did I hire 10 people? If my KPI was hire 10 people a month, I could hire 10 people a month and the KPI check, great job, Brad, fantastic work. Whereas if my OKR is around quality of hire and talking about the impact that those 10 people are gonna make to the business versus just the work that they're doing, that's a materially different lens at looking at those 10 people. 10 people are not 10 people. You know, frankly, rare that you would shoot 100% for 10 people, right? Again, you might shoot 80%, there might be good hires, but 10 exceptional hires is almost, you know, I don't know, I'm sure I've done it at some point in my career, but it's really hard to be 10 for 10 on exceptional because the nature of exceptional is different, right? So if everything's exceptional, that actually is your mean and your average. And so you actually have no exceptional, right? So it's a bit of a loaded piece. But when I think about OKRs, the first piece that I really like about them is the cross-functional alignment. A lot of times people are working in silos and I, and I saw this, not here at LoadSmart as much necessarily, but as I talked to other friends, as COVID happened and people got remote and some of that kind of more or less organic osmosis wasn't occurring, right? The walk by, the water cooler talk, we saw more and more segmentation of silos. So people not realizing what each other were doing. And that's where, again, I think OKRs can be really, really powerful in creating the cross-functional alignment. The second piece is, again, the you know a lot of new kind of time, right? As people don't have to commute or you know the, the balance of work and life gets blurrier. And classically, a lot of places valued people who got in early or stayed late, or it was all about out, like effort versus output and impact. And so the difference, again, with OKRs versus KPIs or classic kind of just even gut check performance metrics is about value creation, value mm. creation instead of task lists. And I think that's really, really an, an important piece. The other piece is around this idea of autonomy. And so one of the things I love about OKRs, and as you're kind of trying to find the sweet spot of them, it's not about an overly prescriptive, do it exactly this way. And if you don't do it this way, you failed. It's about, again, what is that value creation, which opens up all sorts of streams of ideation and autonomy for the team or the individual, depending on what layer you do it at, to try different things. Let's say my key result is X. And if X is so bottled in that I can only achieve X by doing it one way, versus if I leave X open-ended enough that X is the value creation, and if I'm trying version one and version one is giving me a signal it's not working, I can try two, I can try three, I could run a multivariant test in unison, right? So there's some really cool things you can do to create bottoms-up autonomy that's aligned cross-functionally to value creation with OKRs. And I, I think that just is super powerful. And then as you get more into the advanced stages, then you can start playing with things like stretch goals. And it's funny, we um, just actually changed our monthly, we have a monthly kind of management meeting, which is about 50 people, right? So it's all the people managers across the company. And they used to be these kind of readouts of just, hey, what did I do? You know, mm. very, very lagging looking. And instead, what we've now done is picked three OKRs that are behind, actually, I, and this is the asterisk they put on it, or have potential to go further. And what we do is bring them to the table and we basically take that hour and, and um, 30 minute meeting. The first hour is ideation, 15 minutes per the four OKRs, generally cross-functional. We've been solving some really great things because people weren't going outside their silos to ask other questions. So we were able to bring other ideas, stupid questions that actually illuminated really powerful results. But one of them that we selected at this last meeting was actually an OKR that was on track to exceed the key result. And I kind of threw the softball over. I said, could we do more? The key result was 15. Could we do 20? 
And by the way, the manager was like, absolutely, we could have. But they stopped at 15 because that was the goal, right? And so oh, that's wow. the power of stretch goals, right? And again, it's, it's a mindset shift, and it really requires an organization to have psychological safety. Because if I say, to me, it would be better to set a goal at 20 and get 18 than set a goal at 15 and get 15, right? Classic views of performance management and, and the way that organizations evaluate employees is someone would be better off setting a goal of 15 and achieving 15 than setting a goal of 18 and achieving, sorry, setting a goal of 20 and achieving 18. And again, if, if you say that out loud as to a business leader, that's mind blowing. Of course, every business leader in the world would love 18, right? <laughs> Versus 20. Now, the asterisk, that's not necessarily what you use for your financial planning or your workforce planning, right? Like KPIs do have a place in an organization. There are things that you don't want to necessarily put stretch goals on or even how you pay bonuses, right? If bonuses are all stretch goals, you'll end up creating a behavior where people will want to sandbag and set lower goals or set lower baselines and not overachieve so they can control their earnings. So there are places for non-OKR metrics. It's not OKRs can be everything, um, but OKR are the tool and the tool set by itself, extremely powerful when used to try to achieve business results. Let's talk about the people aspect of this, because you had mentioned this team or whomever was like, well, yeah. of course, we could have probably <laughs> shot for 20, but you know, we had a target of 15 and we achieved 15. So that's great, right. right? Can you talk to us about how you separate performance evaluation, or if you do blend it at some level with OKRs, what does that look like at LoadSmart? Because I've heard yeah. different pieces of feedback. For example, I had an example that uh, where someone said, look, we don't really look at it in terms of the progress. We're not going to ding you on progress. If you didn't make progress, but you learned, great. If you made progress, great. But where we do tie OKRs with performance evaluation is on the behavior, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody was just unwilling to help for whatever reason, and they yeah. were like, well, I have other things to do. I'm not going to focus on this OKR or achieving right. your this, the progress on this. Yeah. Uh, if they were a responsible person attributed to it, that was going to be something that was going to be brought up in performance because that's a behavioral yeah. issue. And that's the intersection. How do you all do it at LoadSmart? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're, you're spot on. In fact, let me, I'm going to give you the, the literal readout of how we ask a question. So for what we do, we call a load code review, and it's a quarterly check-in process. We actually ask four yes or no questions, and it's focused on exceptionality. There's no five-point curve or whatever, because what my general philosophy on this is a number of fronts, right? Almost every company I've ever been a part of, and, and a lot of my friends that are in HR, people rarely use the one or the two on a five-point curve. The one is rarely there, especially if it's an annual review. If you have a one at the end of the year, the manager should be fine. Right. Like that's really there. And so it ends up skewing to fours and fives or occasional threes anyway. And mm. so we actually just ask questions around exceptionality and substantiality. And it's about yes or no. And it's oversimplification. We're focused on a strengths based approach versus dinging someone for their pieces. Because again, different schools of thought on it. But there's a lot of data that shows that if you're spending more of your time focused on illuminating and expanding and leveraging someone's strengths, that's a better investment of a manager and a development effort than trying to bring up their average to good areas and trying to make them excellent. Right. Because that's not necessarily going to be in their modality. And so for OKRs, we have a question on results and it says, did the Lodi, which is what we call uh, kind of team members here at LoadSmart, did the Lodi take actions to substantially advance the team or company OKRs? So it's exactly what you just described. Right? It's, oh, wow. It's about 
am I contributing to the OKR? Am I driving in a proactive way towards that OKR? So whether that be ideation, running tests, trying new things, taking fantastic lookbacks. So again, if you think about one of the powers of OKRs is improved forecasting, mm. right? If I continuously am misforecasting because I'm not learning, I'm not doing a good retrospective, that has you know other tails around some of those KPI pieces, right? So they, they actually do play in. The second you start going any further than that in terms of the intertwine, in my opinion, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, you naturally start creating an element where people start sandbagging. If you can't set a stretch goal, like back to your example, if someone was being revaluated on what percentage, 18 of 20 is 90%. So if 100% is better than 90%, even though 18 is more than 15, right? Again, percentages versus units, et cetera. And again, there's all sorts of other lenses in terms of like quality of the units, like 18 if they're garbage. And that's by, again, making sure that there are other qualitative pieces of the key results. So it's not just 18 by itself, right? There are other signals that say it was a good 18, that that 18 was equally, if not more valuable than the 15. All that being said, put that aside and assume that that was being taken into consideration. It really becomes powerful to allow people to stretch and fail, right? The, the classic, if you go back to, again, Obviously, OKRs have technically been around in, in different forms for a long time. But Google, of course, kind of famously brought them back into the, the forefront of things, you know, Intel, et cetera, the, the whole history. That being said, you know, classically, Google 0.7 or 70% is, you know, the sweet spot. If you start consistently getting 100% on your key results, as everything I've read about the work there, again, I haven't been at Google myself, but you know, all the classical reading on the topic says if someone's doing 100% consistently, you're actually flagging them. As like, well, what are you doing? Are you know, are you unable to realize your own potential? Are you, you know, was there more in there, right? And again, that's totally the antithesis of the way that the American, at least, uh, and, and you know, probably at a global level, workforce is used to being evaluated. It's like, oh, what do I need to do? Like, very basic. Especially you look at millennials, right? What do I need to do to get an A? And that's what they do, right? It just, oh, do I need kind of get a little extra credit? But that becomes, you know, how do I pass this SAT or this test? And that's what I go and learn, right? And one of the things that I've always, and I, I attribute it to some of my success, some of its blessings from God, some of its luck, some of its hard work, is I've actually never really tried to look at my kind of a, a gauge of like an external, what am I supposed to have done? I look at it about my effort and output, right? How much capacity did I have? And then how much efficiency did I put around my capacity? Because what I think most people, if they actually remove the stigma of like, here was good enough, and just said, where are they capable of? Most people are capable of here, right? But they get kind of dragged down into the drudges of here was good enough. And this was an A, which is the top grade. And so I'm done, right? And and all of a sudden, it's like you had so much more capacity and potential if you wanted to go in and dig into it. And so the second you start creating performance programs that inhibit someone's actual maximum capacity to empower them in a way they didn't even possibly know they had in them, right? Like that's the fun part of work. That's the energizing piece of, of careers and, and opportunities. And so uh, I, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but that's that's how I think about no, it. No, I think it does. Topic. So we'll keep weaving this journey of talking about strategy execution through OKRs and people right. management. You all have a interesting career progression program called Clear, I think, yeah. right? Over at LoadSmart. Um, can you describe what that program is? And then we'll talk about how does OKRs, if at all, get brought up in that program? 
Yeah, so Clear is something, this is now the fourth company I've put Clear into as well, ironically. And uh, so it's an automatic quarterly career progression program. Um, and the, the asterisk on that automatic is within the control of the employee or the staff member, right? And so we, here at LoadSmart, we have three different roles that we've kind of piloted the Clear program at. I've used this for engineering and operations in the past. Today, it's our three sales roles, essentially, our kind of early career sales roles where we have a large population. And essentially what happens is CLEAR is an acronym. It stands for CLEAR, Career Path, Learning Objectives, Expectations, Accountabilities, and Rewards. And so let's say you are an SDR, right? So you're an SDR one, and to become an SDR two at a lot of companies, it's a bit ambiguous, or does your manager like you, or some randomness, and maybe it's annual, maybe it's who knows what, maybe it's random because you're gonna leave the company and like, oh, let's save you and make you an SDR two or a senior SDR, but it's completely arbitrary. Or, or softly defined. Here, if you're an SDR1 to become an SDR2, you have very clear learning objectives, whether it be things that you need to have read and been able to do a presentation on. For instance, we use challenger sale here as, as a lot of our mm. methodology. Uh, and so those are learning objectives. Expectations, a little softer. Ironically, this is where OKRs come in. So as you get later in the stage, one of the, the key components is submitting an idea, right? A material idea in what we call the open marketplace, which is our ideation session that we have. And so the uh, submitting an idea is a requirement, right? And we, by the way, the, an idea is a one-page kind of scientific theory-driven hypothesis test expected outcome that we can talk about it uh, later on if you want. And the idea, ideally, it's funny those words are interestingly combined, is actually driving towards achieving an OKR and or it potentially could be the impetus for an OKR in a subsequent performance period. And then accountabilities are kind of classic. So like SDRs, number of meetings scheduled or number of deals closed or whatever. But all of these, as you may pick up on, are objective, right? There's no subjectivity to them wherever possible, right? We have a little bit of a, a kind of microcosm where we say like living our core values, right? But we have our core values actually is the framework in which we built our competency and skill pieces. And so they're actually all intertwined. So your skills and your competencies map to our core values. And so they're a little less obtuse than things on the wall. They're actually defined in the, in the form of skills. So living our core values actually has definitions, what that means. That being said, if you hit your learning objectives, expectations, and accountabilities, you also know, let's say you're starting at $50,000, you move to 55,000 as an SDR too, right? These numbers aren't, aren't right. I'm forgetting the numbers off the top of my head, but- um, But they're bands. They're, they're, they're set, they're transparent, right? And it's within a quarterly period. So let's say that you hit all of those LEAs for the, the period, you go from 50 to 55,000. If you miss, you don't have to wait till next year, right? The next quarter you can do it, right? And you can actually get promoted here four quarters in a row. The next layer is to start doing some of the more senior roles, right? Mm -hmm. and, and clear again is, is also, and this is the, the secret sauce that I, I'm pretty transparent about, it's about a break even and or decreasing unit cost, right? Like the cost mm -hmm. per appointment or the cost per load moved or the cost per dollar or revenue. As people progress, and I, I agree to these automatic career progression increases, that's triangulated with finance to say, hey, this actually will decrease the cost per appointment, even though I'm giving someone a $5,000 raise, because I'm saying with certainty that they'll be able to deliver this many appointments. So there's mm. no, they potentially could, right? A lot of career programs put someone in the role and, and then here's the expectations for the role. The clear program is the inverse. Do the role and very quickly within a quarter, you well, get to paid for the role, right? Mm. And so it's it's more of this step versus most companies are like get promoted. Here's what you need to do. Okay, great. You you hit the expectations of the role. So now here's the next role. Okay, you hit the expectations of the role. 
right? And so that doesn't play from a financial standpoint, and it's where there's a lag, and then the market doesn't get gets ahead of the 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 employee. In our version, we stay ahead of the market, right, to the best of our ability. And again, could someone jump, you know, and take that, you know, triple jump, whatever? But I mean, I had a, a guy uh, at the first company I put this in started at forty five thousand dollars a year, and when I left, he was making one hundred fifty thousand. Right, he had been promoted eight quarters in a row. Uh, Good for them. All the way to the senior. And by the way, he he put in weekends, learning the certifications. You know, he he went above and beyond. Right. There are other people who got promoted every nine months. Right, and that's cool too. So again, it, it puts the autonomy in the staff member to figure out how do they want to begin their career journey, how fast or slow do they want to go. It's in within their control. Right. Which is you hear me thematically say that I think that's one of the most important tenets of of a workforce today is people are, are looking for autonomy, right? They don't want to be told, do it this way only and, you know, stifle their creativity, stifle their ideation, stifle their ability to go as fast or slow. Like people are looking for work that meets them where they are, right? And again, there's got to be some push and pull where there's always going to be your top performers, hard, you know, people who want to work more and smarter. There's people who want to work a little bit more balanced. And, and both of those are valuable team members, right? One's not better than the other. And like you said, with OKR, as you also start figuring out that it's not about hours, right? At uh, Ultrasource, we redid the performance review process because it was very much a culture of weekends and late nights, and that was the things that were valued. And so we rebranded performance management there to be called the impact review. And the idea of the impact review was like, again, we also rolled out OKRs and concurrence, but it was what was the business impact you made in your role? And so ironically, when you started looking and someone might work 60 hours and another person 40, but the business impact of the 40, because they were working smarter, perhaps, or more efficiently or more effectively or whatever, was materially more than the 60 hours. And under a classic review cadence, the 60 hours would have been a top performer and the 40 hours would have been an average. But when you start illuminating that with business metrics and, and impact of the and value creation, all of a sudden this individual became materially more valuable in a way that, again, COVID has accelerated this journey to like, I can't look over my job as a manager isn't to walk around and see your people sitting in their chairs by 8am and, you know, not taking too long of breaks, right? Like those are all, that's out the window. Now you've right. got to focus on the business impact that someone's having, the value they're creating and the, the how and when they do that, that's non-material. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point, especially working from home. I've heard some horror stories of, <laughs> individuals saying that their employers want to record them at their desk, things like right. this. And I'm like, that's yeah. really interesting. What does that mean? But it sounds like the way that you're thinking about the business and OKRs is really about outcomes and impact, like you said, okay. to the extent where you even roll that into the language that you used to right. define your program. Now, I do want to touch back because you had mentioned this ideation. And that as you progress as an SDR, for example, and the expectation is the higher the level, you're going to start submitting ideas before review as something that the the team maybe will, will engage right. with. Can you elaborate more on this ideation, the expectations and the more senior levels of actually thinking through how to bring strategy to life? Because yeah. that's what OKRs are supposed to do. Right. Senior leaders come up with strategy and the rest of the folks are figuring out, OK, with my manager or leaders, these are the business problems. And right. here at my position, here are key results that we would submit right. for that. Like, that's how I see it put together. Can you define yeah. that from the load smart perspective? 
Yeah. So, so you, you hit on two things. So I'll, I mean, bifurcate them out for a second yeah. and we'll, we'll dig into ideation. Uh, you know, one thing you're talking about is the pyramid of progress, right? And it's exactly just at an individual level, right? It's about initiatives and tasks, right? And it's making progress towards objectives. We look at objectives as at a team level, right? So objectives are progress towards a strategic imperative or a strategic initiative or a North Star, right? And that's progress towards, of course, some sort of long-term outcome, right? Again, going public, getting evaluation, customers, customer satisfaction, whatever it may be, right? And then the key results are, are ironically just your, your measures on the other side of the pyramid. So the left-hand side is, am I doing the right thing of the mm -hmm. pyramid? The right-hand side is key results, which is, am I, am I, you've heard me say this before, but am I doing them well, right? Yeah. And so to your point, right, this is where things get conflated, where it's the difference between top-down versus directional guidance, right? Like the strategic mm -hmm. imperative, but where people, where it pushes into top-down is when people start telling people how to achieve that strategic imperative. If they say, hey, here's our strategic imperative, whatever, it could be a revenue goal, it could be, you know, again, customer sat rating, it could be, you know, any number of big strategic imperatives. And the objectives is how the team agrees, how would we know that, what do we need to be doing? And then giving autonomy and freedom to the individuals to try things, you know, fail fast, multivariant things, et cetera. But at the individual level, that autonomy to go bottoms up and drive. And by the way, is it perfect here? No, of course not, right? It's not perfect anywhere. <laughs> uh, but that's that's part of the journey. And so where ideation comes in is starts to really, really challenge people to think about how do I know I did something well? And so we actually have a one page template that we use and it's one I've done before. And it's basically I'm trying to remember what the exact pieces are. In fact, I probably can pull it up here. It's essentially what is the kind of identified problem? And by the way, if you look at any time I've ever brought an HR proposal, I start with one of the problems that we're trying to solve, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of HR people come solutions first without thinking about how would they actually solve something. So the first part of anything is what is the problem you're trying to solve? And then what are observations? How do you know it's a problem, right? Because your gut, because you have some data, because you have some anecdotal, but with some materiality, et cetera. What's the evidence? Uh, Right, exactly. So those two are equally important, right? The, mm. What is the problem is really critical, but equally important is how do you know it's a problem? I agree, right? Yeah. It's just gut feel, et cetera. It's, it's so simple and it's powerful. So then uh, you move to your hypothesis, right? So again, with the hypothesis, what is your idea to solve a problem or capitalize on a potential opportunity, right? Again, it doesn't mm. have to necessarily be problem-oriented. It could be about there's an opportunity because the problem is people don't do X, right? Oh, it's an opportunity. And then this is really, really important is a proposed test. Right? How do you go and test this, right? So, um, you know, we were talking recently about some sort of kind of really cool deep dive data analysis tool that we could build here at LoadSmart uh, for a very niche part of our customer base. And, you know, as we put the ideation together, the test was something as simple as send a marketing email and, and offer the first five people a free version and, you know, have an analyst set aside for two weeks to manually go what, do what we think a tool could do, right? First, validate. Is the market interested in this? And, like, are the outcomes from this particular analysis valuable, right? Before, most companies who aren't using OKRs or using ideation would go and build this. Blindly, they're like, oh yeah, I think it could be really interesting. Or, you know, I heard at a conference. So again, it's tests are really, again, wherever possible. I mean, that's a really, really basic test. Like maybe it's an MVP, right? Um, where it doesn't have all the features and functionalities. And then this next two pieces are really, really important as well. What is the expected outcome, 
right? Mm. And again, it's so obvious when you say it out loud, but how many times do people come with ideas without any clear expected outcome, right? And again, that goes back to what we were saying earlier around the power of forecasting and things like that. And so with the expected outcomes, again, they've got to be data. We think if we run this test, the expected outcome would be, you know, five people sign up within 24 hours, right? Whatever, again, you can be wrong, it's cool, right? Why did I think that? I don't know, I had no data to substantiate how quickly it could be. Now, the seventh time I run a similar test, I should have some sense of, oh, it's five within 48 was my really good signal or whatever. And then also the expected outcome, if, if we built this tool, we think it could glean X millions of dollars of ARR uh, across- So tying income. it back to the KPIs or Correct. some revenue, and that Correct. makes some, sense. Yeah. yeah could be revenue. In this case, it was revenue, right? Okay. Um, it could be adoption. It, it could be, you know, it could even be something as simple as having this piece of the tool allowed us to close a larger piece of the of a software, right? Because mm. it, like, like, you might think about like a classic ERP, if an ERP was missing something really critical, yeah. adding that piece by itself is not, you're not going to standalone generate revenue from that, but you may actually beat competitors because you were losing because you were missing a particular feature right. or function. Right. So your hypothesis could have been, hey, adding this will glean this back to us. And so like an MVP there, maybe even a partnership, you know, hey, I'm going to do a, a spoken wheel approach and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the other piece is measurement plan. Like, how are you going to measure that? Right. Yeah, Again, uh, you need we'll access say, to data. There it <laughs> exactly, is. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll give you a really silly one to because to, um, this, this doesn't have to be these big, massive, crazy strategic things. Uh, a company I was at had a large population in India and they wanted to run a cricket league, right? So I said, I, I had a framework where this became the way you proposed any idea to me, right? As simple as a cricket league or something big strategic, I want a new system uh, and everything in between. So I tried, what do you think the problem is? And what it got to is our, our people are, are not connected enough. Great. So what do you think would happen if we ran a cricket league? And again, the first reaction, oh, they'd be happier. Or they'd like it more. Or they'd have fun. Like, cool, great. But back to... How does that tie up to one of those strategic imperatives, whether it be revenue or customers retained or whatever it may be? And so I said, is your hypothesis that if we ran a cricket league, that those people would be more energized and engaged at the workforce and potentially stay with the company? And they're like, yeah, that's what it was, right? Again, you're helping people to navigate. By the way, after you work with me for a little bit, you do this automatically, but HR practitioners generally aren't thinking in this framework. Side sidebar, a lot of HR practitioners talk about engagement and stop the engagement survey. We all, I think anyone listening to this call, hopefully or this podcast agrees that an engaged employee is better, right? We, we fundamentally, there's nothing, no, engaged employees are worse. Like, of course, but the why, why does that matter? Back to like the expected outcomes. What we're really saying when we say an engaged employee is better is an engaged employee is someone who produces more at a higher quality, stays at the company longer and refers and, and connects and re retains other people at the company. Right? Those are engagement metrics. The engagement survey is simply a roadmap to tell you how to do a better job or to continue doing something or start doing something or stop doing something to hit those engagement metrics, right? And so playing those same parameters on the Cricket League, your hypothesis is that people who participate in the Cricket League would produce more at a higher quality and stay with the company longer and refer more friends, right? And so pick two of those metrics you think will be. So they went to retention and referrals, very natural, like very low hanging fruit in the, the context of those for engagement metrics. By the way, we said, great, let's do the Cricket League, right? Very low cost. We did the Cricket League, had about 100 and something people play in the Cricket League. Then we monitored over the next three to six months, the retention and the referrals coming out of that group. No surprise, there were two Sigma deviations higher in terms or lower in retention, higher in referrals than anywhere else in the organization. Asterisk, right? 
my HR team had incentive to go and make sure we're driving, you know, passing out referral flyers at the cricket games, right? Again, back to this bottoms up ideation can create other autonomy. Like, yes, the goal was to get more referrals of great people, right? So I don't care that they cheated to get that. Like it wasn't just the cricket league. It diluted the data a little bit. Then today, my strategic imperative may have been attract more talented people, right? And so something as simple as a cricket league or kickball, baseball, whatever, again, tying that to real pieces, right? That that's and, and business metrics, that's the criticality of it. And while it's not comfortable, it actually can be quite easy, right? And people conflate mm. comfort with challenge. And something that's not comfortable doesn't be, have to be hard. It just doesn't, it requires a little deeper thought, less reliance on best practices or or even some of your experiences that like may have worked at another company, may not work here. It may, who knows? Let's be open. And I think that goes back to the very beginning of our conversation where we talk about in order to be able to be successful, you have to be able to fail, right? I mean, and, and that we see that in our regular lives, right? I mean, weight loss, right? I can promise you, and I am living this unfortunately myself, is like if I just said I want to lose weight, right? I'm not going to lose any weight. Whereas if I say I'm going to lose three pounds this month and I, I measure myself and I hold myself accountable to that, I, by the way, there's a version at the end of the month, I've lost three pounds or a version I didn't lose three pounds, right? Great. And then I can look back and like, ooh, maybe ice cream every night was not very helpful to me losing three pounds. And then I can adjust my strategy accordingly, right? Mm. Uh, but if I don't say three pounds, if all I'm just saying is weight loss, right? And I lose 0.2 pounds at the end of the month, hey, I did it. I did exactly what, you know. At, um, so the being able to set those goals and, and hold yourself accountable and figure out what you could have done better, that's just whether it be personal, whether it be teams, whether it be individuals, whether it be company-wide, it's just in its simplicity, so imperative, but it's uncomfortable because it starts putting illuminations on questioning everything, right? Why is that a good idea? How would I know it's a good idea, uh, et cetera. And so that uh, it's again, really, really energizing when it's working, but the journey through that knot hole to get people there is challenging because it's uncomfortable. Well, the idea or prospect of opening yourself up to potentially fail, I think for a lot of right. people is, is probably the barrier. There's probably a lot of sure. emotional friction that comes with that. It's like, yeah. what does that mean if I didn't make it? Well, <laughs> right. this is, this has been really useful. I have one more question and we're going to launch into quick fire. Got it. Last question to your point. Let's say that the teams don't make it, that they have right. set out an objective and a set of key results. They've been working actively toward it. They did everything they could. Yep. And it didn't work out because reasons. Yeah, sure. How do you all treat that scenario at LoadSmart so that people aren't discouraged from trying again? Yeah. Because I yeah. think this is difficult, is the initial adoption, of course, is hard. But then the continuation of this, given the fact that there's a lot of humility that you have to have, that we don't know everything. Right. And it may yeah. not work out and we have to stomach losses. Can you kind of describe from a people perspective, how you all handle that with your leadership and management? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, you, you hit on the most important piece of that is, do they have clarity of the reasons? Mm. There's a sequencing to this, because if they just fail and don't know why, that is a tougher conversation than mm. if they missed on something, but have clarity of like, hey, we didn't predict this, or we over underestimated our whatever, or I like, for instance, with OKRs, I also say sometimes, they're as critical to tell you what not to do as what to do. 
I can say that you can preach that you can have training until your face turns blue. Someone gets some random project that looks like a shiny object and, and it distracts them. And that could be the reason, right? Hey, I got distracted in this other project that wasn't an OKR, but I thought it was interesting or more important or whatever. And it's like you broke the framework. And so in breaking the framework, but if they have the reasons, the way you figure out if they have the reasons is by doing a retrospective. Right. right. So with all of our people is, and again, we actually do a monthly retrospective real time, what's going well, what's, so basically it's, and again, over simple, red, yellow, green. How is mm-hmm. the key result going? Red, yellow, green, right? If it's red or yellow, what are you doing differently? Mm. So it's proactively getting in front of this set and forget methodology of a KPI where it's like, you're actively kind of saying, Hey, I think I'm going to miss. I think I'm going to hit. If I'm going to miss, what am I doing differently? And as long as they're engaging in that methodology, right, they're generally celebrated. And if they raise their hand and say, I don't know, or I need help, even more so. By the way, I'm here six months, seven months. So we're still in our journey of of how do we create that psychological safety or where people are comfortable. And so even for myself, like I try to go first, right? I try to share, like even with the load code review process, right? We have four yes or no questions. People are afraid and use the word no, right? Oh, everyone's exceptional. Everyone's wonderful. Right. I did my self-review. I gave myself one yes, right? Because it was within a, a slight performance period. Um, and I shared my review with my entire team. I was like, hey guys, here's how I look at my performance. I, a lot of building, but a lot of less impact because it was a lot of building, right? I won't know the impact of a lot of these programs until Q1 or Q2, mm-hmm. right? Uh, by the nature of the work. And so I think as the leadership being vulnerable and setting the bar there, right? Because if the CEO doesn't engage in the retrospective process with humility and authenticity and, and engagement, uh, or the CFO doesn't or someone like that, by the way, that trickles down. And then the executive team, they're like, oh, well, that's not that important. And then they right. disengage and then the water falls itself down. Whereas when you have, like we have here, right, a really engaged CEO, super excited on, on the work, you know, engaging in retrospective self-reflection, sharing failures openly, right? That makes it easier for the executive team to again do that. And then the manager team to do that, right? And so we're still kind of trickling it down. Uh, there are pockets that are really strong in it, certain pockets that are not, right? Um, again, ironically, more on the tech side is more accustomed to this modality than, uh, you know, some of the logistics folks, right? That's not a slight on anyone. It's just the, the it nature just of is. the industry just is. is that, right? Mm. And then there's other, you know, sales, for instance, right? Sales generally don't need OKRs, right? Unless they're trying something materially different, right? Just like hitting a revenue goal, like that's not an OKR, right? In my opinion, at least, you know, unless you're doing something materially different to hit those goals than what you were doing if all you're doing is the same old, same old, right? Like that's a KPI, business metric, no problem, right? Mm. That being said, partnering with marketing on different campaigns, like there's lots of different opportunities to play with OKRs right on. Uh, as a sales team. But again, it's that separating and distinguishing those is still you know, part of our journey. Yeah, I hear you on that. We're thinking about how, for example, to get more proof points and working cross teams to get that happening because it does require multiple functions, as you know, to get there. Okay, quick fire it is. The first question I ask everyone, and you can answer it from a personal or a professional or both. (laughs) What's your dream? And if you have a deadline, what is that? Hmm. I mean, and it's funny, I think my dream now changes as I've got a two and a half year old and an 80 month old, right? And I, and I look at, you know, my son as I drive him to school in the back seat and I, mm. I want him to be happy, right? <laughs> I mean, it's so simple and, and it's dramatically different than I probably would have answered three years ago. But funny enough, he actually replaced the word good with happy recently. Wow. Uh, instead of saying, um, that'll be good. Like, if, hey, you want to go read a book, Jonah? That'll be happy is how he describes it. And it's I like, love wow, that. right? Exactly. Just. Kids are amazing, right? So to me, I, I think that's really where where the focus of my 
mm. my life is now, right? And it's cliche as all hell. And if you're not a parent, you probably will never understand that. You're like, yeah. But it's just like when you look and then he looks kind of like me as a young child. Like I saw you, you, you see yourself in the back seat and you're shepherding me like, oh, where could things have been better for me or worse for me or whatever? And how do I take the good? And, and I mean, <laughs> almost OKRs, right? How do, how do I make sure where the good things were? We continue to do those for him then and where things could have been different for me. How can I make sure he doesn't have some of the same foibles, but also let him fail? And, and I mean, that's where I think the thing I, I love about my parents the most was they let me fail. Right. I mean, I, I only applied to one school out of uh, out of high school, Harvard. Horrible idea. My wife's like, Brad, how do your parents let you do that? My parents let me fail. And I always knew that I had a fallback. Right. And then I and then I went to the University of Maryland because they had a rolling admission and I moved up to Maryland to become an in-state resident. I had to establish residency for six months mm. and I had enough money to live there for two and I had to get a job. And again, I'm very, very lucky. And this is a whole different wider topic, but like because I knew that if the worst case was going to be, I was going to move back home, right? Like that's the worst case scenario, right? And that's such a blessing. And so as a parent, I think, if, you know, and as a company, right? If you can create an environment where people can take risks and challenge things and fall down and know that like there's someone there who will catch them every time. So powerful personally and professionally. So Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful dream. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Second question. What do you appreciate most about your team? they have such a an openness to trying new things right again a, a lot of these practices that i'm talking about aren't relatively typical in in hr practices again some companies are fantastic at them right yeah. um but there's different people who react differently when you say i don't want you to just tell me we're going to do that because it's a best practice or like you know my training team like how do you know that that was a good training not you had a survey but like how did you actually achieve the business result again their their openness to embrace that is just so energizing and encouraging every single day and so that uh again allows me to to continue to help them be better because they're interested in in being better themselves you sound like you have an a, amazing team that's really cool i do <laughs> third question what's top of mind for you these days we're in the thick of budget planning and uh, and getting ready for performance reviews and uh, the load code review is brand new. I just rolled it out, right? So how do we find good enough, right? How do we not over calibrate it where it just becomes like whatever, but how do we make sure that we, we are making progress just every time making progress and that's eating majority of my time. Yeah, it <laughs> makes sense. So you've gone through this four times now for folks who are starting out or starting again, because it yep. may not have worked out OKRs. Sure. What would be like the number one thing that you're like, I urge you to think about this or the key learning yeah. that you would want to impart upon them? Yeah, that's a lot. If I had to pick one, though, it's probably less is more, mm. right? I think a lot of people try to like do OKRs across the entire company or across every individual. It's like, oh my God, that's really hard, right? Um, you know, when I um, when I did this at Altasaurus, right, we started with one business unit. We ran it there. We ran the mechanisms. We figured out the, the processes, right? Then we expanded out to the executive level. Then we dripped down another layer. And so there's a sequencing to this, right? Don't, um, you can be patient, right? Um, again, I, I just used this word a minute ago, but it's all about progress, right? Are you making progress? Are you a little bit better with your OKRs this quarter or this period, whatever that is, than you were the previous? And that's way more important than trying to bite off the entire elephant. The other piece I'd say is, is make sure that you're, again, I, I used this at the beginning and I'll, I'll end on it as well as right. 
so simple, but it's amazing how many times as I've done coaching through the years that this is a bit of a eureka moment for people. When you read an objective and you read the key results, do the key results answer the question, was that objective accomplished? And so that may mean like any number of things in terms of like how you're actually answering that question, right? But again, does that mean that the objective is connected to something? Does it you know, have a new value creation? Can it be done within a quarter or whatever the performance period is, right? Is it ambitious yet feasible, right? So that's your objective. And then again, your key results, and are they controllable by the team? Do they account for unintended trade-offs, right? Are they linked to some sort of quality, revenue, engagement, growth, performance, something like that, right? Are they metrics or milestones versus to-do lists, right? So you're allowing mm-hmm. a level of autonomy to how will I achieve that, right? So the OKR in, in its simplicity is back to like logistics, right? In its simplicity is is also extremely complex. So if you you narrow it down to does this tell me I'm doing something well? And like, did I achieve it? I think you'll have a lot of fun and, uh, and you'll, you'll be surprised how illuminating it is for everyone. Brad, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom and experience with our listeners today. It's been an absolute joy having you on the show. Awesome, Jenny. Great to have you as well. And uh, let me know if you need anything else. But by the way, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Again, I think the OKR community, just like the HR community, is only as powerful as, uh, you know, kind of its weakest link. And so the more we can share practices and ideas, feel free to reach out. I would love to uh, help in any way I can. Excellent. Thanks so much, Brad. Great. Thanks, Jenny. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.